Morning, Mike. Hello, Jonathan. So this week we are on a recorded episode of IRC Book Club because Michael is having a little bit of leave on Friday. So we thought we'd record this early on Wednesday morning. Mike's off to Berlin. I'm off to Berlin, yes. First we take Manhattan, then we take Berlin. Who said that? I have no idea. Leonard Cohen. Or no interest. I don't know even what he did. Right, well... So welcome to Book Club, the show where every week we talk about a business book or a sales book. We take it apart, we put it back together again, and we try and add some value to what the author has already written. Um, this week we are on chapters 9 and 10 of Objections by Jeb Blount, which we're rather enjoying, actually, after the ardour. Ardour? Just the difficult challenge of reading the book we read previously. So chapter nine is entitled Avoiding Objections is Stupid. It is? I agree. I disagree. <laughs> do you, do you, you think that's a stupid thing to say? What, so you think avoiding objections, do, do you like to avoid an objection? I think that the objections that you get are often created by the questions that you ask. Are you free? Oh, there's an objection I walk straight into. Well, close question. Close question, and you're giving yourself an objection. Agreed. And I've got to tell you, I have found that the longer I have been an IT sales recruiter, the better I have got at asking questions that lead me down a certain path, that lead me away from the obvious traps that are going to create certain objections for me. Ah, now, I, later on, it's interesting you say that, later on in Chapter 10... I wrote a lot about projection and perception. And we'll come back to it because I think it's a much bigger topic and I think he's missing something deeply fundamental. The more I thought about it when I was reading it in the book, which is some people have an aura to which others simply don't object to. Correct. Correct. Now, I, I think... His point that he's going to go and say in this chapter is that if you're ignoring something, hoping it's not going to bite you on the ass, that's always out there, then that's daft. Oh, God, yeah. And I think that's the distinction to make. But I actually think, can you sidestep an objection? Can you get your way around an objection? Uh, yeah, 100% I do. Th I, I think you well, can. Well, you think you can get into a selling situation, wow a customer to a point that actually somewhere subconsciously they'll forget about the objection that to a degree i mean i think it's a very gray subject of those two things isn't there you know if right I'm, if i'm out to buy a three-bedroom house and the house has only got two bedrooms then it's a very obvious objection listen this house has only got two two bedrooms if you're going to buy it you have to put an extension on it have you got budget to put an extension on it yes no maybe no right well let's find another house yeah very you, black you, and white. you know there's some that are like that whereas actually you know, this house is 400, 400 grand. You said your budget was 350. I'm thinking to myself, I tell you, I mean, I've never sold houses, by the way, but I'm thinking to myself, actually, they look like they can get to 400. Let's show them the house first. Let's, let, let's see if they fall in love with it. Then let's see if they can get to 400 grand. Right. So there's, you know, so that's the distinction. Whereas I think what he's trying to live is this puritanical world that we get all objections yeah. out of the table and over Whereas every single sometimes, one of them. What's the point? What did Trevor Dale, a colleague of ours, say? You've got to show a dog a rabbit. You've got to let the dog see the rabbit. Trevor Dale retired at 40. Let's be clear. Got to let the dog see the rabbit. So, um, I, and, and what he used to mean by that was, 
sometimes if you just put a good enough candidate in front of a client, the client would overlook all sorts of other faults. Package being one. Yeah, package, track budget, track record. Uh, get the, the but, most... but you said the nail on the head there, budget, you see. So, so budget's a really good one. Because th th there comes a point at which, no matter how good the, the candidate is, the client won't create a headcount. That's normally the case in the bigger US companies. Yeah, Doesn't okay. matter how good your candidate is, they're not going to create a headcount. Well, in a, in, it, the moment you get involved in a company that has anything like a half-decent amount of governance, if they've not got budget, they've not got budget, and that's Correct. it and all about it. So, so, so then, I mean, that then, that, then you go through the chapter with that in mind, really. And, and let's get right. I'm enjoying the book. I think it's a good book. Let, let's look at that, just that point in, in the context of our work. I, I'm work. Sometimes I get candidates go to interviews and they know damn well what the objection is. And something that often, oh God, I, don't, I don't know why it surprises me. I've been, this is my 20th year in recruitment. Often I'll say to the candidate, listen, when you walk into the interview, at some point you need to front the objection. You've got to look the devil in the eye. Yeah, you need to look the devil in the eye. You need to turn around you to know, the client I, and say... I don't have experience of selling to HMRC. Or I understand you're concerned about the fact that I've moved two or three times in the last Correct. three years. Correct. To what extent is that still a concern for you? And 20 years in, you know, 10 years into at least knowing enough about the market to, and having enough credibility to advise a candidate to say things like that in an interview, I would say only two out of 10 will heed the advice. I agree. And his point is, salespeople avoid objections because it's easier to remain in the comfort of delusion than to get the truth on the table. I mean, I actually think sometimes it's just pure cowardice, afraid, fear. He says, I underline the next bit, Delusion is such a gracious thief. He's, he's really loquacious, isn't he? He's got so, uh, he writes beautifully. I think I've remembered now why I loved fanatical yeah, prospecting but, but, so much. But, but I, I, if it was me and, and I was in, and I was looking at this such critically, I think to myself, if you had the time, you'd look at each objection and say, do I need to front that or not? But at some point, you're in battle. Yeah. And you've got to make a decision on it. Whereas there's lots of things. And there are so many grey areas there, because there are certain client environments where you can be really clear, where you can walk into a meeting and say, listen, I understand we've got the following four things we've got to sort out. Here We're today. very fortunate because we deal with salespeople and we can say, I believe you've got an objection about our price. Yeah, I, I understand the following things are key issues. Let's talk about them. And a lot of the people we deal with are all right enough to go, yeah, that's right. Yeah, let's go on. Let's do it. Yes. Um... But I think the other part of avoiding objections is stupid is if what he's saying is, listen, there's loads of salespeople out there who completely avoid every objection, hope they'll go away, he's 100% right. Yeah, bang right. He's 100% right, the guy. They're usually the ones that don't sell out. They are, yeah. Yes, I completely agree. Yeah. Now, I don't know what page you're on here, but I'm on page 88. Me too. And I've underlined this particular one, which is, are you the decision maker? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's very interesting. As long as I've ever been a salesperson, I think that's the number one objection that just never really comes out. Yeah, all right. And that's an absolute killer of an objection. So when me and my wife bought a new car recently, who was the decision maker? You. Was it? 
Yeah. You reckon? Yeah. Lisa, heavy influencer. You, decision maker and budget holder. You're the economic our, buyer. Who, when we bought the house, who was the decision maker? You? No, wife. Really? Definitely. You're the economic buyer? No, the economic buyer is the person that's got the power to say yes when the others say no. It's got nothing, okay. to, do, it's got nothing to do with money. So you'd given her a budget and said, I'd within that bu budget... I hadn't given her a budget, she was just keen to do it, and I thought, yeah, fair enough, I mean. Right. So what's your point in the context of the so book? Our point in the, so our point in the context of the book is, what, what Jed's point is, is uh, he's saying that, what, that if the person isn't the decision maker, a lot of objections will come that are false objections. Yeah. So you've got to figure out whether the person you're speaking with is the decision maker. Because if they're not the decision maker, they are going to lead you astray and you are never going to know what the real objective is. And then he's is. talking about people who ask the question, are you the decision Correct. maker? And then he gives I mean, does the people really do that? I do. Do you? What? Are you the decision maker? Yep. What? So you just ask it straight out? Yep. Sting? Yep. So I've got a candidate in the frame. Whereas I know, do, I, I'll, I'll, I'll I do, do it indirectly. I'll say, tell me, how, tell me what needs to happen for, 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 for the business to be able to recruit somebody in who nah, needs to be I never involved. Do that. I have a blue sheet for each individual thing. One of the things is, do you want to use inward revenue? Yeah. And I will, whoever I'm speaking to, I'll say who decides that. Oh, it's not that simple yet. It's, somebody's got more power than everybody else. Who decides it? Yeah. I'll always say that. And then in terms of the candidate, you know, it's always interesting when it comes to second interview. So your first interview is with sales manager, sales director, whoever it is, you know, line manager. Second interview is with chief exec MD. Who makes the decision? I will always ask that. And if my candidate, and I, I don't necessarily tell the candidates. If the candidates ask me, I'll tell them. But I don't necessarily tell them, you know, I, I wouldn't tell them for the sake of it. Because I like to think to myself, how good a salesperson you actually are. So I recently placed a guy, he hasn't started yet, you know who you are, you start on the 15th of November, and he asked me a question, and I thought it was a beauty. He said to me, right, Mike, you've got two candidates in the frame. If the client asks you for your opinion, what will you say? And right. I said to him, I'm not a decision maker. It's just you ask the client. He said, right, who's the decision maker in the client? I said, why don't you know? He said, right, I'm going to go and find out. I thought, you're a good salesperson. Did he find out? Yep. How did he find out? He asked. How did he ask? I don't know how he asked. But he did? Yep. Okay. So he's saying, if you don't know who the decision maker is, often you're selling to the wrong person and you get a shitload of objections because actually, fundamentally, you're selling to somebody who can't buy and therefore they create objections to, ob uh, to cover up the fact that they can't actually move forward with the Yeah, process. and he's, he's giving you some sort of uh, nicer ways than obviously I have got. <laughs> of saying he's the decision maker, and he's 100% right to ask it, I think, 100%. One day, somebody's going to write a book, I've put it here, called Understand the Process and Sell to the People at the Right Time. Yeah, and then on, I'm on page 94 now. I could dwell on these for much longer, but go on. So, he then talks about... God, can I just stick on one thing, actually, on 91, actually? Go on. He talks about decision making, and he says there's tools like Zoom Info, Discover Org, and LinkedIn. Yeah, and he's saying you. it's made the process a lot easier. Yeah, he's wrong about that. Why? Because I think a lot of the titles on LinkedIn are very misleading. I think you can easily make an assumption based on somebody's title on LinkedIn I think and you they can end up are, in a right rabbit hole. I think they... I, I concur and I don't. Zoom Info, Discover All, LinkedIn, all these tools, what they can do, 
remember how we did it when we were lads, was you rang up and said, hello, good morning, could you tell me who's responsible for hiring salespeople in your business? Now, it's an American book, clearly. Because That's... actually, you didn't have access to names. What? So, in a different, you know, in the, in the universe we grew up in. Well, this is an American book, but if it was me and I was based in the UK, the only place to be absolutely definitive about the decision makers is company's house, unless it's a PLC. Truly definitive, yeah. Truly definitive, yeah. Yeah, well, particularly, the in the, particularly in the market you and I operate in. Yeah, 30 to 50 to 60 million. Now, it's obviously different with a lot of the US companies that we deal with. Yeah. Anyway, uh, go on, Absolutely. And then he says, he talks about this buying process basic, which I like. Uh, it's a, a rehash of a million other sales processes around what different types of uh, buying influences I like the fact the he said that salespeople like, they like three things, salespeople. Food, sex and cocaine. Where's he written that? <laughs> I've missed that. Have you not? 94. Have I slept through that? As the subjects began talking about themselves, the area of brain associated with pleasurable feeling and reward, like good food, sex and cocaine became activated. Woohoo! Yeah, so th this is an interesting one, isn't it? Activating the self-disclosure loop. And I wrote next to it, brackets, shut up. What he's basically saying is, one of my favourite techniques for pulling the veil from objections is activating the human self-disclosure loop. It's a very pompous way of saying, shut up. Shut up and listen. Well, he does say that in fairness to him. Yeah, he is. Pause three to five seconds before speaking. Pause three to five seconds. So, but actually, what he's really saying, and, and, he, and he's right, he's saying staying out of the way and allowing your stakeholders to talk can activate this reward loop inside their brains and cause them to spill the beans. For sales professionals, understanding and leveraging this reward loop is the easiest path to bringing hidden objections to the surface. And then he talks about, begin with open-ended questions. Give the other person your attention. Avoid interrupting, rushing or talking. Pause three to five seconds before speaking. Once the loop is running and the stakeholder begins to self-disclose, listen deeply. And, you know, it's good, this. And then he sort of does a... What, what I'm noticing in every book we've read so far, there's a paragraph on listening. But actually, it's a book in itself. And it's a training course in itself. And actually... You and I both know we've both done SAMs. If there are any sales leaders out there, I'll do you a favour. You've got to train your salespeople. To get them to ring your local branch of Samaritans and ask them how much money they want to come out and teach the Samaritans listening wheel. They will show up. They want the money. They are a charity and they will send a trainer. And it will be the best sales training you will ever, ever, ever buy for your salespeople because they will learn how to shut up and listen. And you and I have both done that training. And we, it, we, I, I, if you said to me, what's the best sales training you've ever done? I'd say Samaritans and Childline Counselling model. Yeah, 100%. That beyond any doubt, better than anything, Miller, Hyman, this, that. It, it, it just wipes the floor with every other course I've ever yeah, done. Getting people to talk to is quite powerful. Yeah. And, and, he's, and his, I think he's almost underplaying how many objections just listening all over well this them. guy you know this guy boxes from the front foot when you listen when you read his book really yeah because he's saying find the objection hit it he's a very much a front a front foot player yeah so therefore you've got to think he's going to be a talker more than a listener possibly yeah oh definitely that, yeah that's the whole tenor of the book isn't it yeah he's like the wolf send of wall street more than but, send more than receive yeah hit him harder but than they hit you but actually on a, on a, a lot of objections particularly with a more intelligent client, if you listen deeply enough, 
often they'll count in the same way. If, well, they're logical people. Well, if you look at the council, if you look at the counselling model, so if you look at classic Rogerian counselling, which is what Samaritan's listening model is based on, and so on. The whole basis of it is that if you listen hard enough and reflect enough, the person in the conversation will be will hear their own words, and in allowing them to hear their own words they'll then process their own thought process. I understand it. Therefore, if you listen hard enough, often I've found sometimes if you just shut up enough, the client overcomes the objection themselves. They just reason out loud the different angles. Every now and then you get a client where you do a bit of silence. I did one. I did a silence with a client the other week. And he just out silenced me and the two of us sat on the phone silent for about a minute and a half. Which was quite amusing, really. And in the end, I did break the silence. Because I, I was like, this is... Fair enough. Any points, more points in Chapter 9? I think you missed a belter. What have I missed? Mapping stakeholders. I mean, that's a book in itself. Yeah, I, I didn't, it is. I didn't really like his buyers, amplifiers, seekers, influencers and coaches methodology. What did you not like about it? I just thought... It's just another methodology. I just thought that Millerheimer just wipes the floor with that. I think that this is a tactical book for tactically overcoming objections with the person sat in front of you. Well, he's just giving you a little of taster of the Jeb Blount strategic selling program. Yeah, I wouldn't buy it. As sold by salesgravy.com. Yeah, I wouldn't buy it. Call 0800-944. Go on then, prospecting objections. I use this a lot. Everybody's got a plan until they get punched in the face. It's one of my favourite ever phrases. It's a brilliant phrase. Absolutely brilliant. So what he's talking about in Chapter 10 are... The coalface of objections, isn't he? Well, he's talking about doing it under a bit of pressure, isn't he? Well, um, getting objections whilst prospecting. Yeah, yeah. His, his point about Tyson's great. He's saying, listen, you've had the previous nine chapters. That's all great. But at some point, you've got to pick up the phone and then see what happens. And he's, yeah. he's going to say it all goes out the window unless you keep your, yourself together. And I, I've got to say, I, there's a, a, a line I underlined here on page 100. It says, unless you're a pure inbound sales rep, if you wait for your prospect to interrupt you, you will fail. Why? Because the number one reason for failure in sales is an empty pipeline. And the number, one reason, the, and the number one reason salespeople have empty pipelines is they fail to prospect. And he's right. 100%, yeah. You know, we have a very different view of, the, of selling. We have a crow's nest view, don't we? Of people coming, people going, people whose careers are on top, people whose careers are are behind always the one same thing behind every failing sales career and it is they pay me too much to get on my phone or or words to that effect or they didn't give me any leads or their marketing is terrible and the the, the, the individual in question is usually at cause saying it's somebody else's fault and there's never and then when you get into cold calling, making a call, prospecting, they're usually, it's usually something that they look down upon or just simply haven't done any of. Yeah, and I, well, yeah, I mean, it's a bit, I think that's a touch simplistic because when you look at the environments that we deal with, it's not about banging the phone a hundred times a day. But as one of my clients it's about currently finding says, a way. as one of my clients that I'm working with right now says, he says, listen, Mike, this job isn't about banging the phone a hundred times a day. He said, but at some point, the salesperson is the person who has to get through the door. Doesn't matter how much marketing we give them, how much target account marketing we give them, doesn't matter how much of all that stuff that we do. Yep. 
They are the person. It is their job to get through the door. That's where they have the value. Yeah. That's the value. It's their job to get through the door. It's their job to have that first frosty five minutes with somebody face to face. Yeah. It's their job to turn that five minutes into half an hour. It's their job to turn the half an hour into an hour and then open it up. And I mean, this is a big company. They're very slick. And he said, we can give them all this marketing support and all the other stuff that they go through. So I think we're on the sort of same page. Absol- with it, absolutely. I mean, I, I, I went to see a client last week and uh, we placed the fella there, start of the year. I said, how's my guy getting on? And the client, they're delighted with him, really pleased. And I said, what's, what's so great? And they said, he's doing a really good job with some of the deals he picked up and ran with. He's incredibly busy with the deals he picked up and ran with. He's absolutely stacked. They said the thing that was impressing them the most was that he has an immense, almost brutal self-discipline that Monday is prospecting day. Yeah, 100%. And that doesn't matter if the client, if client X wants to do contract negotiations on Monday, he says, no, I'm not. No, Monday's prospecting day. A bit like, you're a bit like that. 100%. Yeah. yeah, you're a bit like that. So, so when you fail to interrupt, you fail. I like that. I, I like that. I, I really liked that. I like that, yeah. Relentless yeah. interrupting is fundamental to building robust sales pipelines. Yeah, I, I agree. Whether that's via email, and he says whether that's via email or... Yeah, I think that's, I think that's a bit of a what, out, really. No, but he says interrupting. You're in the business of interrupting people's day. And that's a bit of a cop out. Uh, Why? Email. A cop out. He's saying it's whatever. You must pick you up need. the phone or walk in the door, send an email or text message, or ping a prospect on LinkedIn. That's not. That's not prospecting. No, it's not. It's but it's marketing. part of the prospecting mix. It's marketing. That's you being puritanical. Correct. That's it's you being puritanical. He's not about not hold, you know, not not hiding from objections, not hiding from the job. I, the I job also, yeah, I, I agree. I think what he's really doing there, if he said, "Look, the only real definition of prospecting is getting on your phone," people would run a mile from the book, like. Well, maybe it'd attract the right people to the book. Yeah, but he wants a broader audience than that, and he's trying to sell sales training. Yeah, possibly. But remember, remember he's not really in the business of selling books. I don't think. If, if we got the guy here now and said, listen, what's your predominant revenue stream? Is it training courses at Sales Gravy or the 27 US dollars that your book sells for <laughs> retail, to be fair? Um, I think you'd probably find that actually the predominant revenue source, irrespective. Maybe, maybe I should canvas him and record it. Maybe you should come on the show and respond to my LinkedIn messages. Um, oh, so you use LinkedIn, not a phone call? Yeah, maybe I need to ring him. Maybe you need to ring him. And say why? You can yeah, he's number of Lucia. Which isn't illegal, by the way. A lot of big companies use Lucia. I'm not a Lucia salesman. <laughs> Let's talk about RBOs, reflex responses, brush-offs and true objections. Okay. So what's, what's the big reflex response in, in, in recruitment, Pricey? I, tell you what the, I know what you're going to say. I tell you what the big reflex, reflex response is. is <sighs> that's the response. It's a very subtle, I'm not engaged with you, pause and silence. That's the real objection, I think. And I mean, I'm surprised he's not put it down because actually, do people react with, oh, don't talk to me, I've got another supplier. No. I tell you what happens when you canvass somebody right, and I've canvassed a lot of people for 20 years, is they don't sit there and give you their objection in the way that Jeb Blount says they do. That's not what happens. What happens is they close in 
they don't react and then you've got a chip inside the shell to get the reaction out of them. I don't agree, they run their pattern, Mike. People run patterns. That's, that's okay. Yeah, they run a pattern. Oh, they do run a pattern. The pattern's different to what he says. Well, different, pa pe different people run different patterns. So the reflex response is... Uh, and I get his point about walking into the shop, I'm just looking. Everybody's like, got I, a I pattern, the haven't they? Everybody's got a pattern for a cold call. Yes. It's a deep, subconscious, rooted groove. We all have millions of patterns that we and live our lives by. And how do you think that by. manifests itself in the main? What, in recruitment or in sales in it's general? Sales in general. Depends what you're selling, doesn't it? If you're selling... Well, if you're a CIO, your job is to engage with suppliers a lot of the time. So if you're going to run a different pattern to Les Graham, who used to own Graham Jewelers in Chapel Allerton, who picks up the phone in his shop, age 68, and gets a cold call asking him if he wants to change his electricity supply. Whereas if enterprise software vendor X rings up CIO Y, they're two different patterns, aren't they? But they're still patterns. Well, I think they have the same response what Jeb Blount talks about is what our response to receiving objections is. It's what our response to the pattern is. What he doesn't talk about is what the prospect's response to receiving the cold call is. And I think what the prospect does is shrinks into the shell and tries to give you as little information as possible. But they don't do that consciously. No, they don't do it consciously. No, it's not a, prospects don't know what they're doing. No, they don't. They are totally don't. unconscious and they become even more unconscious the moment they enter into a sales call. Of course they do, 100%. They go into complete hypnosis. So my point is, is you're going to ask me what, what, what the objection is, and we get all kinds of objections, obviously, but I think there's two levels to the objection. The first level is the prospect goes into their shell a little bit. The second level is then when you get the objections, you get a number of different push-offs. Well, more than anything, I think the prospect clouds over. They... they, they they lose their humanity. Do the same, do the same thing. Yeah, they, the lose their, thing. they lose their humanity and they, there's a little man inside their brain that presses play on a tape called Sales Call Pattern. Well, he, he talks about it, doesn't he? He talks about yeah. the reflex response. And I think the thing is, I mean, I do this all the time. I go into a shop to buy something. Somebody comes over to me. I say, yeah, I'm just looking. And I don't know why I do that. You're running your I, pattern. I love salespeople. I love being sold but to. But like, don't talk to me. Leave me alone. But you are naturally rude anyway. Um, but anyway, so, 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 I mean, his point here about the reflex response. You ignored that is, comment then. You just ran your pattern over it. I did, yeah. I did it on purpose. <laughs> um, I can't remember. I got to know, really. We were, just we're talking about, about people running patterns. And then he, he talks about what he's going to call pattern painting. And we call it pattern interrupting. And he puts pattern painting, disrupting the prospect's expectations for how you all respond. We'll discuss pattern painting later in the chapter. And I wrote here, the problem is with pattern painting is it takes courage. So, uh, you know, I've done a lot more. Uh, if you look at the history of Inward Revenue, I've done a lot more working with our newer staff over the years. Yes. And I've done a lot more sitting with them when they sat with those reflex objections. Oh, they're just, they're and, just I've been trying, and I've been trying to teach for a long time to the point where actually in the end I gave up. I've been trying to teach the concept of when you call, they lose their consciousness and they run a pattern. All you have to do is run a pattern interrupt over the pattern. Yeah, definitely. Um, and actually what I've learned is that you can explain that till you're blue in the face 
And why don't they do it? Because they don't have the courage. They don't have the. Courage. I agree with that completely. They don't have the cojones. And what frustrates about it is, you don't need that much courage. As no. Jacob Spencer used to say, what are they going to do? Punch you down the phone. Yeah, but, but I think that there's a large part missing here in the book, which is, listen, if you haven't got the cojones to say something that you wouldn't ordinarily say, if you haven't got the cojones to sometimes be a little bit more acerbic or a little bit more assertive, don't get into sales. And my experience of it is, one, we've got to look at some of the people we recruited over the years who didn't have the cleones to say things when they should have said them. But two, actually, my, my life experience is vast proportions of people never quite have the balls to do it. I do agree with that. And did you go into listing his RBOs in the table? I've got to say, I mean, I started doing the table. with the Fair list- play, Pricey. With, I, I, I didn't. Actually. With listing the RBOs. And just so for those of you listening to the book, he basically says, uh, list your brush-offs. Then he says, create responses to your brush-offs. And then he takes you through what he calls the three-step prospecting objection turnaround framework. Yes. And then what now, he's talking about is writing scripts for the key RBOs. Yeah. Now uh, I haven't... And, and just define what an RBO is, just in case I don't think we defined it, which is a reflex response brush-off or true it's, Yeah, I mean, it's, it's just a brush-off. You, you, you're well, it's one of... It, RBO stands for reflex response brush-off. Yeah, yeah. I was going to say, it's just the initial objection you're going to get from your prospects i am um, i've got to say though i think it would be an absolutely superb thing to do i didn't do it for the for the book i did the first table and there's another three tables i didn't do it for the purpose of now because i don't want to let my clients know how i'm going to come overcome all their rbos but i do think it'd be if you had a big sales team sort of five or six and you're going to do a sales training day i think that'd be an excellent thing to do absolutely yep. excellent i think it'd be well, a really but, good thing but how to do. long did we have manual hard-backed script books in our office. Yeah, well, there's no point whining about that, but I'm saying no, but I'm not to, whining. To, to my clients. The people that were successful in our business used to sit with those script books open and use them. The, well, yeah, my point is the people to the clients um, that are listening to their clients, I think they should do that. I think you've got a sales team with five people in it. I think. You oh, should, what a I great think, sales meeting. I think you should do this. I really do. I think you should have somebody read the book. I think you should go around the room Get all your salespeople to list off what brush-offs they get. Then do I the next agree bit. More. Then do the next bit. And I tell you what, I, I'm pretty pretty confident in the fact that if you did that, you'd phone me after you'd done it for your sales meeting. You go, listen, Mike. Thanks. Yeah, for that. pricey. I don't agree. Why not? Because what will happen is people will go out, and and I'm really skeptical. I'm very cynical. Oh really? <laughs> sales manager X will walk into meeting Y with sales team Z. He'll say, I've got an idea, guys. Uh, today, I want to just write the top five objections we get when we're prospecting. And then we're going to write a script and we're going to use it. They'll all go, I'm too important to use a script. Maybe that's the difference between our markets. I'm pretty sure my clients would do that. I just know that won't happen in mine. I'll tell you, yeah, I'm pretty confident a lot of mine would do that, actually. In, just, I just think most, most of the people I work with and, I, and, I, and I'm, bar actually the, the excellent chap I interviewed yesterday, who actually did work here for a while, um, pretty much nearly everybody I work with wouldn't do that. They would think that they're above scripts and that scripts are for scroty salespeople. You reckon? Yeah. Sad, isn't it? Yeah, but we work in a really interesting industry because if you look, for example, at the big data and analytics market space, 
or for example cybersecurity, there's lots of people making lots of money, not because they're brilliant salespeople, but because actually per se they're in the right market at the right time and therefore they command a significant value through their knowledge, not necessarily the sharpness and the quality of their salesmanship. And if you put them up against salespeople in other industries, I think a lot of them would get crucified in other, against other certain industries. Which industries? I think in, for example, financial services and other more capital goods based industries, I think you'd find salespeople whose pound for pound salesmanship was significantly greater than a lot of the salesmanship we experience in our industry often, particularly in the more buoyant market sectors. Whereas you operate in an extremely mature market where actually the salesmanship of the individual is much, much yes, more I important some and relevant. Good guys, you know. Yeah, you do because you work in a much more mature market. So a lot of the work you do in finance software, ERP, for example, they're very, very, very mature market sectors. Therefore, they're not driven by the market itself. They're partially driven by the market itself, but actually for a salesman to succeed, he has to be capable of A, differentiating himself to the point that he gets an appointment and B, differentiating what often are extremely me too products. So getting back to the book, did you really step staged process? Yeah, yeah, I did. I liked it. Um, he, 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 before we get to staged process, I, I've just got one other point, which I've sort of alluded to partially, which is projection equals perception. Yes. So it, there's a bit here where he talks about repeatable practice scripts and the, and the paragraph that I thought was brilliant. In emotionally tense situations, scripts free your mind, releasing you of the burden of worrying about what to say and putting you in complete control of the situation. A practice script makes your voice, intonation, speaking style and flow sound confident, relaxed, authentic and professional, even when your emotions are raging beneath the surface. Jeb, thank you. I've been trying to tell everybody this for years. Um, well, it, but, takes, it extends that to using his example of an actor, doesn't he? He said correct. an actor's only using the script. And I've been trying to tell people for years, the job is like acting. You've got to buy yourself thinking time. If you're using the script you, and you know it well enough, it'll just come out of your mouth and it'll give you time to think about your next move. But the one bit I think he's missing here is the fundamental concept of the projection and aura of the individual salesperson. And I think that there's a point in a salesperson's career, and going back to my point that I was arguing with you about just now, about salespeople that work in cybersecurity or analytics, and these guys who are on 120K, who I personally believe their salesmanship isn't up to much. What is up to scratch is they have immense auras based on years of knowledge and understanding in what are procurement situations that are fraught with fear. Well, maybe the that's customer. their skill set. Maybe that's what makes them worth 120k. Yeah, but it's not pound for pound salesmanship per se. Why is it not just a component of the salesman's armour? Why is it, it not just one of their it, weapons? Because it's not salesmanship as, as it would be defined by Jeb Blount. Maybe Jeb's got it wrong then. Maybe he has. I think the salesperson but, is a multifaceted thing. With correct. Different, with but if you drew parts. percentages of the different parts of actually pound for pound salesmanship, ability to cold call, ability to overcome objections, actually a lot of the guys we deal with, their aura is based on immense amount. <laughs> this is me saying it because I think actually one of the things I've realised is I'm less focused on my pound for pound salesmanship nowadays. And a lot of what's make, what, what makes me do well is actually a little bit of my aura and confidence and knowledge that people draw upon and come to me for, as opposed to my salesmanship 
as a pound-for-pound pound ability to overcome objections, prospecting, and so on. So I think there's an element of that that he's missing in the book. But in reality, can you take a millennial salesman, Mike, and make him project to a point where nobody's going to object to him? No. No, probably not. It's going to take something... How do you develop that? Well, that's developed over years and years of experience. And so what happens is I think there's a shift in a salesperson and a part of the battle of being a good sales guy is knowing when that shift's taking place from I'm winning because my sales skills are bloody good because my ability to listen, I'm very consciously and unconsciously competent with. My ability to overcome objections, I'm consciously and unconsciously competent with, to the point where actually I just become so bloody credible in my sector that actually the customer is buying off me and not objecting because he just finds everything I've got to say useful and I become credible. And a lot of objections are overcome by that projection. It's not in Jeb's book. No, but he's missing it. Okay. But I don't think he can make much money out of selling sales training on projection. Okay. And then ledge disrupts and act. Yeah, I mean, I, uh, I, I've been waiting for him to bring in a bit of a process. Um, and he's brought in a bit of a process. I, um, I don't think it's brilliant, but I get it. I didn't um, like the script at all. I quite liked them, actually. I actually put great script. Did you? Yeah, I thought they were good actually. I thought, I gotta tell you, I think that they are, if somebody used them rather than just going off and winging it, they'd, they'd be, more, be better than they'd be not more successful doing, with these. I couldn't agree more. That's better than not having a, a script. I mean, him versus Wolf of Wall Street. But I think a script, any script. That's where the wolf's actually. I, I'd actually say, have a script, any script, as long as it's a script. Yeah, definitely. And if yeah. you deliver it with enough certainty, yeah, I mean, actually, actually you'll overcome work. a lot of objections. That's exactly why we should get together. That way I can learn more about you and tailor a package of information specifically to your situation. Yeah. That's not bad. I thought it was good. I quite liked his uh, three-stage process. Okay. Here's another thought. Some people will never, ever, 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 ever be able to deliver a script. Why not? Because they simply don't have the wherewithal and personality to do so. Well, they're not in, they're not in sales, then, are they? You can't name a salesperson that doesn't have the wherewithal to do that. They're not in sales. Okay. Yeah, my Mr. Mate, Mr. A... Fink and Wiv, who used to work for us. You know, he just sells something else to somebody else. Couldn't get, do let's, it. Let's get it right, Johnny. He's been in recruitment now for a year with another company, so he's just found a different sector that he works in. What, that works for him? Yeah, definitely. Couldn't deliver a script to save his life? Is mm, it couldn't or didn't want to? Yeah, both. Lots of the latter. More of the latter. Didn't want to deliver the script. Didn't want to. I, I, think, I, I think everybody that's in sales probably can deliver a script. I've got a, I, you know, I, I've got a mate who's an accountant. He cannot deliver a script. I've got a mate who's a scientist. He can't deliver a script. I've got a mate who's a chef. He can't deliver a script. None of the salespeople, so what's the issue? I bet we could go and get a salesperson out of direct line today, give them a script, they could deliver it. Okay. If they wanted to. Now, the well, problem is the word courage 
stops people doing it. Yes. If they had to do it, if you had to do it, if you just there was no way around it, and it meant not going out on Friday night, and it meant not watching the football on Saturday, and it meant not having Sunday lunch down the pub on Sunday, if all you did Friday night, Saturday, Sunday, was learned one page worth of script, and properly, that's all you did. You'd overcome that objection next Monday. Monday. The objection. I couldn't agree more. So how many people do that? Not many. This is my point. Is not many. Well, salespeople were built to be lazy. You know, have you ever done it? Have I ever done it? No, I haven't done it. And I'm pretty sure you Jacob haven't. Jacob Spence did it. And, and and no disrespect to Jacob. He's pretty wooden, Jacob. He has. He, he's not Chris a man. Scott did it. You know, again, he, he's not a man with a. Slinky, funky personality is he? He's a very wooden human being. Yeah, he's a but, lovely fellow. He's got no, he's not a salesman. But fair play to him. him. He, he, he wasn't going to be beat. He was very. He had a big why, didn't he? You're correct. Chris he Scott was the same. Be, I thought he wasn't going to be beat. Oh, it's Chris Scott. I sound like wooden. But I tell so you what, actually, underpinning all of it, underpinning all of this objection stuff, actually, is how badly do you want it? His willingness to do it and completely commit yourself to the cause. Yeah, how badly do you want? to do what needs to be done to be good at objection handling. Because if you're not willing to do any of it, stop reading the book. Yeah. That's stop the, reading the book. And again, I think that's missing. Is Yes, but this isn't a book about what makes the salesperson. This is a book about objections. No, but I think actually, if you're going to get good at overcoming objections, the first question you've got to ask is, how badly do you want it? How, yeah, possibly. How yeah. badly do you need it and want it? And what are you prepared to do to get it? Are you prepared to subjugate yourself? To learning scripts. It's not subjugation, is it? It, it? it, you know, it's like my daughter's a red belt now in taekwondo. A red belt, because God, she's had to learn some boring stuff. Because she's worked hard at it. Yeah, she's had to learn some boring stuff. Get there. Yeah. But she's learnt it, and this is the same. Ledge disrupt ask. Well, that's what we were just talking about. I thought, yeah. it was, I thought it was an okay framework. I thought it was better than most frameworks, because it's a framework. Yeah, but, mine, but the one I was taught at was Parcel Listen, pause, clarify, feel, felt, found. Yeah, exactly. It's just a another. I don't think I'd change from listen, pause, clarify, but Jeb's got to sell a book, I guess. I'm not going to change from that because that's so ingrained in me and it works. And it's better. Better, worse. I, I don't think there is better or worse. I think there is. Have a methodology and use it and groove it. Groove it and groove it and groove it and groove it. There's a reason why you can go and turn up at a golf course after not having played for you and still hit the ball. It's because when oh, you were a yes. kid, you grooved that swing. Yeah, yeah, 100%. It's the same thing. Yeah, it's a life skill. Okay, so actually, that's been a pretty interesting couple of chapters, hasn't it? And it you, has. you actually read chapter 11, which we're not going to talk about today, because I didn't. <laughs> okay, <laughs> But I, I, I'm sure you'll tell me what it's all about, and that it's, it's all governed by numbers. It looks like that's going to be pretty interesting. So we'll do 11 and 12 next week when you're back from Berlin. Berlin, yes. Right, good. Have fun in Berlin, Mike. I will. Thank you for listening. See ya.